Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. No, absolutely not. I think what we see is a very clear contrast between all the different parties on how we need to move forward as a country. And this is a time when Canadians should get to be very clear about how they want to end this pandemic. We're joined by the leader of the New Democratic Party of Canada, Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, good to have you back on the program. How are you? Hey, doing well. Great to be back. So when you hear Mr. Trudeau say this, that it's a need for Canadians to, he wants to provide Canadians with the opportunity to determine how the pandemic ends, that's why we're having the election. What do you say? I don't think that's a good explanation. We elected, or Canadians elected us for a four-year mandate. We were able to deliver the help that people needed. Uh, New Democrats were there to fight to get more of that help to, to more people. And then we should be focused on actually fighting the pandemic and getting in place the necessary steps to finish the, the tailwind of it or the end of it. And that's what we should be focused on. We shouldn't be in the midst of an election. It, it seems to be struggling to come up with a reason for this election. Right? Yeah. Clearly, there isn't one. So you costed uh, the election platform yesterday. It's expensive, but you say much or most, perhaps all of it, can be paid through fair taxes being po- imposed on the ultra-rich. So I read definitions and explanations for this approach in various websites and by social and political commentators, and I've done this for some time, such as the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and Alex Hemingway, who's a very bright guy. Uh, But I also have to ask you, I've read Senator Bernie Sanders' approach and the Green New Deal proposed by some Democrats in the United States. Is this what your party is proposing? Because some of these models... Include the one percent tax on the ultra rich, and then they go beyond that. Are you are you emulating Bernie Sanders and the Green New Deal? Well, I mean, there's some similarities for sure. But we're laying out really what we've said all along. We believe in this pandemic and coming out of it into the recovery. There's a question on people's mind: Who's going to pay for it? It's a legitimate, very fair question. We are the only party saying it's not going to be you or your family. If you've got a, I've got a good job and you've got a, a home, it's not going to be you. Don't worry. We are being very clear. We're looking at the ultra-wealthy, wealthy corporations that make money in Canada that don't pay their taxes here, web giants like Amazon that make record profits in a pandemic but don't pay taxes here. We're going to start making them pay their fair share. And it's something that is not not too long ago used to happen. So the wealthiest corporations used to pay a fairer share, and they haven't for a long time, and we want to restore that fairness. So you're going after the corporations. What about individuals? And I'm asking this because there are successful people who do very well in life, and uh, and they they employ and they support charities and they support communities. That's one part of it. Then the other part of it is, and and you've talked about wanting to attract talented and skilled people to this country. How are you going to attract international talent, much needed in Canada, to drive our economy forward? If you're going to tax successful people more than other countries, wooing them. We'll tax them. I mean, how, how do you manage that? Or am I misunderstanding your plan? Well, yeah, there's a misunderstanding. Mis- mind misunderstanding. I can clear it up, though. Not a big deal. Yeah, it's please. Really, th- there are there are loopholes that exist that that don't sit well with people. If if a regular everyday worker goes into work, 
comes home and gets a salary for their work, they pay their fair share. But just because someone is really rich, uh, a billionaire, they can hide their revenue in an offshore tax haven purposely to avoid paying taxes, and that's completely, completely legal right now. We want to stop that. We want to end that from happening. We want to make sure that if you earn income in Canada, you pay taxes here. And right now, there's a lot of loopholes that don't allow these companies or that allow these companies to not pay their fair share. There are people that have uh, massive wealth. We're asking them to just contribute a little bit more, uh, a little bit more fairly. And in doing that, it's going to allow us to be able to pay for the things that we need so we can get out of this recovery. It's going to put it's going to put us in a better position to recover. And it's not going to put any burden on those that should not be targeted. The working class, middle class, people that are that are doing well, the young professionals, uh, people that are very successful. We're talking about the extremely wealthy. We're so you would only you would only increase yeah. the tax. You would only put a, can we call it a wealth tax? What what do we call it? Yeah, yeah. So the wealth tax is so you would only you would only you would only impose a wealth tax on the billionaires. Yes, it's it's on the super wealthy. So if someone has more than ten million dollars in fortune. Uh, it's going to be on any amount over the $10 million and a 1% on that. So if someone has, uh, let's say, $50 million in fortune, then uh, on the portion over $10 million, so the $40 million, a 1% on that. Uh, that's what we're looking to do. So it's, it's really a significant way to increase revenue, but it's only on a very, very small percentage. Okay. Of 37 would, million Canadians, we're only talking about less than 1% of Canadians. Would you... I don't want to get mired on this here because we only have a few minutes with you, but the monetary side of things is very important. Would your plan also include additional taxation, like charging a tax on estates valued more than $5 million? And and would you also support workers assuming at least some level of ownership of the companies they work for? No, not at all. And, and it's a really important question. I appreciate uh, a chance to clarify. It's not going to be on someone who's got a, a home that seems to have increased in value, it's not going to be on people who've got less than $10 million in fortune. This is people who've got $10 million or more in fortune and only on the percent, only 1% on any amount over $10 million in fortune. Uh, in addition to closing loopholes, in addition to uh, ending the offshore tax havens. So if someone is using an offshore tax haven to hide their money in the Caribbean, yeah, they're going to have to pay their fair share. But for uh, someone with uh, a two-car garage home and has a great job? No, it's not going to affect you at all. So $10 million is the uh, the cutoff point. That's right. Okay. Indigenous peoples, Mr. Singh. Mr. Trudeau mentioned uh, Chief Cadmus Delorme of the Cowess' First Nation in Saskatchewan, and he took credit for he and the chief having come to an agreement concerning child care and First Nation children at Cowess's. Chief Delorme is going to be my guest at the top of the next hour. I know you know him. He likes you. He's told me that. Can you share with us the key issues that you will commit to to Indigenous communities in this country, whatever number of seats the NDP holds in just over a week's time? The number one thing is is uh, clean drinking water. There is no excuse in a country as rich as ours in the 21st century that every community doesn't have clean drinking water. I don't believe that it's a lack of will or a lack of capacity or technology or know-how. I, I, I believe it's been a lack of political will. And, and the reason why I say that is in the beginning two weeks of this pandemic, the banks wanted some backstop. And Mr. Trudeau was very quickly able to release uh, 200, uh, sorry, $750 billion in financial backstops to support the banks if ever need be. That was a priority, and he would jump to make that happen. 
I believe that there hasn't been the same commitment to make sure Indigenous communities get clean drinking water. That's one. I wouldn't fight Indigenous kids in court. Right now, Mr. Trudeau is fighting these kids who were found to have been discriminated by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. The decision that the tribunal made was that they were willfully and recklessly discriminated, and Mr. Mr. Trudeau is appealing that decision. I would drop the court cases against the kids. I would make sure we fulfill our commitments, follow the orders of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, and, and really start concrete action towards justice for the first people. Right. I have to ask you this about uh, climate and about energy. Now, the world is not going to shut off huge oil use for decades at the earliest. And even then, it's probably doubtful. Are you in favor of continuing to import over 700,000 barrels of foreign oil every day in, into this country, while the construction of pipelines, which would move internationally sought Canadian energy to tidewater and to eager markets overseas, thereby earning hundreds of billions of dollars to sustain Canada's social programs, our health care, and help fund the programs you're in favor of, the programs you like. Are you in favor of continuing to bring in 700,000 barrels of foreign oil uh, every day rather than export our oil? Mr. Singh, it's coming in and it's going out either way. Well, what I look at is I think about what a government's responsibility is. And, and I think it's prudent and responsible for governments to look at what's happening in the global markets, where is the world headed. And for us to remain leaders, we need to make investments that will get us ahead of the curve and also to do our, our part to fight the climate crisis. What's really clear is every major car manufacturer in the world has announced that they're going to end the sale of fossil fuel combustion vehicles. We know that the countries that have the most renewable energy will be the most successful. We also know that our economy, for it to be strong, needs to be diversified. So I believe the prudent and responsible thing to do is to make sure we make investments now that will have us but, ahead of the curve but, when it comes to renewable But Mr. Energy. Singh, we're importing 700,000 plus barrels of oil each and every day. The TD Bank, in now I'm going back a few years, in a 2012 report uh, wrote the Canadian Energy Research Institute estimated that if the current major pipeline expansion projects, this is 2012, which are in uh, the works, do not get built, thereby constraining future oil production in Western Canada, Canada would forego as much as $1.3 trillion of GDP and $276 billion in taxes from 2011 to 2035. What people are asking is, why are we importing oil? Why are we buying 700,000 barrels of foreign oil every day instead of selling our oil to, to markets that want it? Well, in terms of like what we do with our raw resources, I think there's a really genuine question around why we aren't refining and adding value to raw raw goods in Canada. It's yeah. something that a lot of folks have brought up to me. They've said, you know, why is it that we're not actually adding value to the things that we, we um, were producing here in Canada? We're not actually adding value to it. A lot of folks have raised that when it comes to the to the lumber industry that we're we're you know we're ripping and shipping. We're not actually adding value. And that's a legitimate concern that we should be adding value, creating those ad value-added jobs in Canada. And that's something I absolutely believe we need to focus on. How do we build an economy that's actually built on adding value that's going to take a natural resource and then uh, improve it so that it can be sold? That, that's, a, that's a good idea generally, but it doesn't take away from the fact that we need to be investing in the economy of the future. I wish I had more than 10 minutes with you. I have a lot of questions. Um, I've, I've, I've we'll enjoyed, have more time, I'm sure, soon. Yeah, it does. I enjoy speaking with you. I enjoyed the first conversation we had. And uh, I like the fact that you don't get your back up if somebody asks you a question. Too, too many times politicians get thin-skinned and their voices rise. Uh, you, you don't do that. Oh, no, I appreciate the questions. <laughs> I feel like it gives me a chance to explain my position, and, yeah. and it's also good to be challenged. I feel like it's an important thing. It's good that we're getting energized. It's good that we're starting to get, uh, you know, get get our 
brains and hearts involved because in a week and a day we're going to be voting and uh, keeping a close eye on how Canadians are preparing to vote, what the mood is in the country, how the mood swings, how the, sh- how the, how the attitudes change, uh, what the gender uh, voting is, what the demos are, what um, regionally how things are working out, is Ipsos Public Affairs for Global News. And Ipsos does fantastic polling. And my good friend Daryl Bricker, who's the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, the author of Next the book that needs to be in every home in this country, is with us. And, uh, Daryl, thank you again for giving up uh, part of your Sunday afternoon. My pleasure. And and so if we look at an overall picture right now, and my apologies for going on as long as I did, if we look at this country, um, by the way, my friends will tell me it takes me a long time to get to the point. Maybe you've noticed that. (laughs) But if we look at the country now, Daryl, what's the mood? How are Canadians leaning? It's fragile. Um, the Canadian mood is fragile right now, particularly as we uh, get into this fourth wave of, uh, of uh, COVID. People are quite anxious at the moment. And I would say in terms of the political situation, if you want to look specifically at, uh, at the election, um, what we're seeing at the moment is that uh, it's a very tight race and a lot of division. So I find this interesting because you mentioned COVID, and of course COVID it should be a major factor in the election campaign. It's been a major factor in each of our lives for a year and a half. But I also don't hear it talked about in my conversations. Maybe it's just because of the conversations I have. But it really has to be a factor in the uh, in the uh, in the election. Is, is it a demographic issue? Is it a regional issue? Is COVID or is COVID a national part of the national discussion? It's really comprehensive. I mean, it's it's across demographic groups. It's across uh, it's across regions. People are concerned about COVID. Uh, it's and, and and it's really driven by uh, the uh, what, what's happening in, in specific communities. So people look outside the front door, and if they feel that it's less safe than it was before as a result of this, then they become more concerned about COVID. But it is a fairly comprehensive uh, issue, I would say. Uh, one of the polls that you uh, that you did at Ipsos says one in eight Canadians undecided about the election. That took me by surprise. Is that a is that a big number for a week usually for a week before a vote? Yeah, it is. Normally we see it uh, tighten up a little bit more than that. But one of the things that's really going to be tough on the pollsters this time is is even among undecided voters, uh, including undecided voters, is figuring out who's going to turn out at this election. Because the voting's already started. I mean, we already uh, began with preliminary uh, voting um, uh, on Friday. And right. people have been voting by mail for a while. So a fair amount of this election might already be over by the time, you know, we start rolling into next week. as, as a lot of people uh, participate in ways that they maybe didn't participate previously. So uh, undecided voters at this stage of the game, given that there's a certain number of barriers to participating, people feeling like, for example, that that voting might be a bit unsafe and undecided voters are more likely to feel that voting in person is going to be unsafe than people who uh, are more decided about how they're going to vote, uh, more confused about what the uh, the other options are for voting. Um, they may actually not vote at all. So even though they're undecided, um, even if they're undecided, they might also be confused about you know what the situation is. So I don't know that necessarily as we get into this next stage of the campaign, it's going to be about convincing undecided voters. It's more about getting people to actually vote, which is going to be harder in this election than any election I can remember. Oh, I mean, that's, uh, that's quite a statement. 
um, because we we have um, been a bit of sort of national laggards at getting out and voting in numbers that we should vote because we've been in the uh, low 60s for turnout, at least in some of the elections, federally and much lower than that provincially and municipally. Yeah, well, the last two elections, 2015-2019, set a a record for this century. So from 2000, year 2000, had, uh, I don't know, the exact number of elections federally, but we've had a number of them, and the two highest turnout levels have been 2015 and 2019, both times that, uh, that Justin Trudeau won. In 2011, when turnout was low, so in, in the last two election turnout was around 69%. Mm-hmm. In 2011, when Stephen Harper won his majority, it was only 61. Mm-hmm. So learn, low turnout elections tend to favor the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if this turns into a low turnout election, and all indications are that it probably will be a low turnout election, one wonders if we're going to find ourselves in a scenario where there's a slight advantage to the Conservatives. Uh, and this is something that you mentioned uh, on, on this program a couple of months ago. You, we were talking about that, and you said if the turnout is low and the base gets out for O'Toole, even then you said there's a possibility of a conservative minority government. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and it, I mean, I don't know what it, what's going to happen, but, yeah, that's the conventional wisdom, right? Um, if it's a low turnout and the, the conservatives get out, then they're going to have a good shot at forming a government. Um, so, so are are the conservatives still in a position where they're slightly ahead of the liberals, or have the liberals drawn even? How tight is this race between those two parties? Before we bring in the NDP, okay. So, what we've seen um, from the start of this campaign, I mean, first of all, there's been a whole bunch of polls that have just been. Uh, I would I would describe them as. Um, uh, Outliers would be too polite a term. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're just like, you know, showing the conservatives ahead by 14 or you know, these massive changes in public voter opinion from the beginning to the end. What we showed in our polling, and I think most of the pollsters that you could name, uh, the ones that are very serious about this, have been showing a fairly steady pattern of public opinion. So at the start of the election, uh, the Liberals had a fairly comfortable four or five point lead. Um, had all the problems with the call of the election, uh, evened out a little bit in the second and third week where we saw the Liberals and Conservatives draw uh, very close together. And then by last week when we released our last poll on Monday, Tuesday, so through last weekend, um, what we saw was that the Conservatives moved into a slight lead. So it's been a fairly gradual evolution of opinion rather than big jumps one way or the other through the course of the election campaign. What is a story like uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's book excerpt yesterday uh, saying the Prime Minister wanted her to lie and then Mr. Trudeau responding yesterday that he had never wanted her to lie? And then today, Selena Caesar-Chavan saying, the former parliamentary secretary to Mr. Trudeau, saying that we don't need more of his ego and that she's going to vote conservative. How much of an impact does, does that have on opinion nationally? Well, it doesn't help. I mean, because that we're talking about it, and I'm sure a lot of other media outlets are talking about it. It's going to make its way, certainly made its way into the, the news on the, the course of the week, during the course of the weekend, and was a fairly prominent story. And you know, those other things come up, and people will be talking about that as well in the news. And the Prime Minister is going to get asked questions about this on the road, or Justin Trudeau is going to get asked questions about this on the road. He's not getting much of a chance to get his message out. Mm-hmm. So if that's, the, if, if that's the narrative of the last couple of days, um, it's not good. It's obviously not good for the Liberal Party. 
um, that's not what they want to be talking about. They want to be focusing on a combination of why you shouldn't vote for Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives, and also by implication, um, Jagmeet Singh in the uh, in the NDP, and why you should be voting for the Liberals. You don't want to be, uh, you know, relitigating cases that took place in the last election campaign. And it's interesting. Uh, I, I saw uh, Justin Trudeau's comments about this. He said, "Look, we decided that in the last election." Well, it doesn't seem like Jody Wilson thinks that it was decided in the last election campaign, or that you can just kind of brush it into there's a, there's a line drawn in history, and you can you can just push it back. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Will there be any more excerpts from this book? I don't know, um, but it's certainly not a topic uh, or an agenda that the the prime minister wants to be res- mm-hmm. responding to, particularly this late in the election campaign. No, and the book's kind of coming out on Tuesday. It was supposed to be uh, published on in October. But now it's going to be available next Tuesday, so it'll be it'll have time to uh, to add to the the flavor of the of the election campaign. And what are the indigenous issues which absolutely must be addressed by the next federal government, however it's made up and whoever leads it? Chief Delorm joins us on the Roy Green Show. Chief, thank you very much for the time, and how are you doing? Good afternoon, Roy. Um... Sunday's good. It's my family day today, but I'm really happy to be spending a few minutes with you this afternoon. Well, thank you. What are the issues of greatest relevance to you, Chief DeLorme, in this federal election? Roy, I got a five-year-old daughter, and she's an Indigenous person. And we know from the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls called to justice, the 231, the toughest person to be in this country is an Indigenous female. So, you know, I... I believe the truth and reconciliation calls to action. The, the authors of those are the over 100,000 residential school survivors who told their story. The 231 calls to justice from the missing and murdered. Those are action plans that every Canadian should be asking when MPs come to their door or, or ones that want to get elected. You know, what role are you going to play in these two? And within one generation, Roy, this country can be a lot better than where we're at. Yeah. Uh, I, I I truly believe that, and I certainly uh, hope so. I don't know if I can put hope and believe in the same sentence, but I just did, because it, sometimes, Chief, when we look at what is done by political parties and by governments, what they say on Tuesday is not followed through on, on Wednesday, and it just becomes uh, increasingly difficult to deal with the issues, certainly that First Nations are dealing with. We're starting to understand that more in the broader community. In Canada, would you assess for us then, please, how political parties have addressed and the interest they have shown in Indigenous issues like the boil water advisories, consultation on Indigenous rights, as far as major energy and resource projects are concerned, the 94 calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? What sense do you have about the resolution and the commitment the political parties bring to dealing with the issues you've raised and, and the ones I just raised, which are essentially the same? Uh, thanks, Roy. It's it's a uh, it's a Pandora box. Uh, the the uh, everybody must reset their compass a little bit when it comes to Indigenous people, Indigenous people included. You know, as one chief in this country, you know, we have resets reassessed our governance structure to make sure we're ready to take on child welfare, as we have signed with Premier Mo and Prime Minister Trudeau two months ago. We're right now renegotiating funding models that are more long term rather than. Uh, just, you know, basic, uh, making sure we stay above poverty. But from a, from, a pri- from a parliament perspective, you know, this system is a huge system. 
And I strongly believe, I met Aaron O'Toole. He came to Cowes' We Talked. I met Jagmi Singh. He came to Cowes' We Talked. I met Justin Trudeau. He came to Cowes' We Talked. I, I strongly believe every leader has the best interest for Indigenous people of some perspective. Of course, their, their, their policies and their party perspectives may be varied, but it's the machine, you know. And I'll give you an example. When Cowes' got child welfare, we were the first in the country. It sounds like it was an easy process, but it was tough to get to the mission. There was times where, you know, even MPs had to wait for bureaucracy to do their work, and bureaucracy was taking too long in some cases. So even my, my long-winded Pandora response box, uh, Roy, would be everybody has to reset their compass. Indigenous issues should be reassessed from a different perspective. I, I'm not saying outside Parliament. But sometimes when you put politics involved, we're always going to have these issues. Yeah. Uh, Chief DeLorme, you know, I know, everybody listening to this program knows that politicians will react to what the public wants, to what the public demands. Do you have concerns the commitments to Indigenous issues that Canadians displayed earlier this year may be waning as we approach the federal election, thereby giving politicians an out as far as taking meaningful action is concerned? Do you have a sense that the same commitment that you heard three months ago is still there today? The thing I've learned in the last three months with the unmarked graves and, you know, signing child welfare is many proud Canadians are putting their shield down and they're now admitting, I don't know much about the truth. This is huge, Roy. Like, this is huge. Indigenous people have been saying this for decades, for generations. So, you know, the opportunity is now. But as long as you keep Indigenous issues directly involved with MPs, I do strongly believe we're going to be spinning tires for a whole other generation. I, I don't know the exact answer. I do have ideas. But, you know, to, to have Canada on its own canoe, and I'm going to use an ideology of two canoes really quickly, Roy. Canada's canoe going down the river. We, we're the G7 country. We're, we're looked at in this world as a developed country, one of the best. Let's strengthen that canoe, but let's leave the other canoe to heal, to invest, and that's Indigenous people within this country. Keep the politics out of it. Invest. You know, there's going to be the odd ignorant person that says, oh, that's taxpayers' money, or why you're just wasting money. This is investment. It was Canadian policies that put Indigenous people in this place. So it's Canadian investment that needs to put Indigenous back in their place. And we're talking pre-treaty strength, governance, justice. And I guarantee you, when those two canoes beside each other, Roy, this country will be one model that other countries would come to and say, how did they do that? Yeah. I, I, we have to achieve this. There are no choices. We have to achieve this. Chief DeLorme, final question for you. Flying of the Canadian flag at half-staff, what are your thoughts? A flag is a strong symbol. I, I've been to 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 just about every building in this country that that has flags that I've been in. I'm I, I love to. I'm a tourist person. I like to go and look at places. I've been to sports sports events where the anthem is sang with such pride. And you know, when it comes to the flag, you know, when you lower a flag, it, it means we're in mourning. It means that you know something or somebody of significance has just passed. You know, Canada is awake right now at the reality of unmarked graves that Indigenous people have been carrying the pain for. So raising that flag 
you know, would resemble that Canada, you know, is, is, is you know, moving forward, but lowering it will continue to honor the unmarked trees. We got 60 residential schools to go plus in this country. This is going to be three, four years in the making, if not more. So, you know, we got to be prepared for every unmarked grave story to come forward. And that flag may go up, may stay down. You know, it, it, it's, it's a tough situation. But Canada, you know, prepare. We're going to be in mourning for probably three to five years. And, we, and that's only if we react correctly. And then, you know, at some point when that flag is raised high, every proud Canadian can look at it and say, listen, there was four to five years of tough times, of reality, of truth. But, you know, let's, let's focus on reconciliation now. So that would be my answer at this time, Roy. Selena Caesar Chavon. She was the Whitby, Ontario Member of Parliament, Parliamentary Secretary to Mr. Trudeau, was on the air with us just two weeks ago and talked to us at the time about having felt like a token in uh, the Trudeau government and being sent to events which featured largely black audiences because she is black. Today, Selena told Mercedes Stevenson of Global News that she is going to be voting. She, Selena, is going to be voting for the conservative candidate in her riding of Whitby. Selena, thank you. Thank you very much for coming back to the program. Thank you, Roy. Thank you for having me. I'm not surprised that you've decided to do what you're going to do, but tell us why. Well, there are a number of reasons. And I I think really the, the conversation that this has brought about around you know, voting for a particular candidate or for a particular party just because you've always done it or because that's the way it's been um, really should be put to the test. And, you know, on yesterday's program after reading Joey's book, I, look, Roy, I helped the Liberals in 2019. I said nothing in 2019. I helped my local candidate, uh, Ryan Turnbull. But I think it's really time that we look over the last six years, we look over the behavior of our current leader, and as liberal as I am, really think about making a decision that is in the best interest of Canadians, and whether that is conservative, NDP, or green, um, I, I think people should really consider the choices that they have in front of them and make make a choice not to reward bad behavior any further. So this isn't about liberal beliefs or philosophy. It's not about the liberal party per se. For you, it's about the leader of the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau. That, that's exactly right. And like I said, in 2019, I, I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, um, to help Brian uh, here in Whitby. And, you know, I felt conflicted about it. I, I felt conflicted because you're liberal and you want to sort of maintain those, those principles and philosophies of, of their program, of their party, of their, of their platform. But we've seen time and time again, and especially over the last six years, remember we had four years of a majority, two years of a minority. We still haven't seen really social justice reform happening in our country, especially around um, things that I'm passionate about, the repeal of mandatory minimums, the uh, expungements of criminal, criminal records for cannabis. Like There are some issues that I think have not been dealt with. And then when we compound that, with a behavior of a of a, their, the leader of the Liberal Party who says basically, you know, I'm going to tell this woman to, to do something that's not true, that's unethical. We really need to call that into question. People, governments fail on policy all the time, 
when we have call into question someone's values, beliefs, standards that impact 37 million people, we really need to start questioning how and what decisions we make come September 20th. Have you had pushback at all since you mentioned earlier today to Mercedes Stevenson that you would be voting for the conservative candidate in Whitby? I'm pretty sure I have, but I've been off the internet <laughs> for most of the day, Roy. You know, I, you don't read the comments, and I'm sure there's a lot of pushback. I'm sure there's, there's going to be a lot of steam rolling out of this. But I'm challenging Canadians to think about what they would like to see in the next in the next four years. Why we are in an election right now? The piece that I wrote for CTV, CTV News talking about leadership. It, does Canada need another two to four years of ego, or do we need leadership? And at this point, um, I think that we should we should go in the direction of leadership and not continue to reward ego. What are your thoughts about Jody Wilson Raybould? Uh, you know, I, I, I really admire her. I think that she is a principled, disciplined woman. And you know what? I, you know, I was listening to, you know, the, the prime minister talk um, about, you know, how he would ferocious women's rights. Nobody's saying that anybody is not um, um, in favor of doing that. Nobody's saying that somehow I've... Um, I've left those uh, principles somewhere, but when we talk about how you treat people, when you talk about how you behave in terms of um, not trying to manipulate someone in order to gain something that's politically expedient for you, that is what happened with our former Minister of Justice and Attorney General, Ms. Wilson-Raybould. I admire her for the fact that she was able to stand up in her principles. I felt every single line of that prologue in that book. I felt it to my core. There were lines that he said to her that were exactly the same as me. The anger that she felt was exactly the same as I felt. So I believe every word. This guy makes me nervous, my next guest. I don't know why. Because I never know what he's going to say next. Because I'm afraid he doesn't know what he's going to say next. We've been friends for many years. We uh, entertained one another with our great friend, the uh, late Professor John Crispo, when the three of us would get together on the air on Thursday mornings and talk about, well, anything and everything and sometimes nothing and sometimes Dr. John Crispo driving his lawn tractor into his pond staying seated on the lawn tractor and sticking his finger up, his arm up and his finger extended to see if it would break the surface of the water. <laughs> Stephen LeDrew is the past president of the Liberal Party of Canada. How are you, my friend? I'm very, very well, but I'm disappointed in that, Roy. You think I don't plan out every word when I'm on radio with you. You make me so nervous. The moment that you tell me I'm going to be on, I start writing to make sure that I'm up to par for you. I know it. (laughs) I know you've been doing nothing other than write for this segment for the last number of days. (laughs) Well, I've been working a long time for it, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about the election ever since before it was called. Yeah. I just want to say something about that. The segment, we used to call it the Grumps. Right. Right? So the three of us would go out. That was you or I. Huh? No, that wasn't you. It was was our good friend John. But I remember you saying one time you were in court and you, you, you didn't know how long the case was going to last that particular day until the judge was going to adjourn for the day. 
And you said to the judge, did you asked if you could sort of break up for the day because you had something to do? And he said, I know you do. I listen to that segment and I like it. <laughs> okay, so here you are, the past president of the Liberal Party of Canada. You you worked with and were alongside some of the most respected of the liberal um, senior leadership prime ministers. I think of uh, you know I think of Paul Martin. Um, we won't bring up Jean Chrétien because we did that at the time. But I think of some of the people who whom you must have worked with. When you look at the at the Liberal Party today, Stephen, what do, what do you see when you think of this election, and the reason that it's it was called? What's your reaction? Well, I'm I'm uh, I've been a big critic of this government for a number of years, and people say, "Well, you're no longer a liberal." I say, "I am still a liberal. There's no question. I am a liberal. I don't think Justin Trudeau and his cabinet are a liberal cabinet." And as you say, when I look back along. Wonderful cabinet ministers in, uh, in Martin's government, in Kretschmann's government, and his in, in his uh, Trudeau's father's government. Fabulous, competent, skilled people. I look back at the ministers in Mulroney's government. Skilled, skilled people. We have very few skilled people in this cabinet, and uh, amongst the unskilled, I believe, is uh, is the prime minister himself, Justin Trudeau. I don't think he's a liberal. I think he's what we read often about these quote progressives, and you hear about them often in urban politics, and these are the people who, really, they know it all, and they want to tell us all what to do and how to do it, and, um, and they, want, they want us to be directed by themselves, and I think that's what Trudeau does, except for he doesn't have the wherewithal to do. He tries, he promises a lot, but uh, he delivers little, and Canadians don't, well, they see that, and they make their own judgments. Our Canadian press says little about that, but if you read the world press, the world press thinks he's a bit of a buffoon. And they say that, in fact, I read an editorial the other day on the London paper, London, England, they're saying that Canadians are finally waking up to the fact that they have this woke prime minister who is a bit of a joke around the world. And uh, this one editorial said that, said that uh, you know, hopefully Canadians will think that uh, better and get rid of them. You know, when you look back to 2015, when he yes. was elected with such enthusiasm by so many people, um, and, and he promised so much, and he seemed yes. so happy, you know, with his sunny ways, and the budget is going to balance itself, and all right. those things that he said. Now we here we are six years later, and I feel this is a man who is almost very much alone. He doesn't have much in the way of backup from his cabinet because he hasn't encouraged it. And the people who were strong people in his cabinet are gone. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, gone. Selena Caesar-Chavan, gone. She was on on the air with us earlier. Jane Philpott, gone. Bill Morneau, gone. Now, you didn't, didn't necessarily have to say you agreed with everything that these individuals said, but they were strong and they could have taken up some of the slack. Uh, apart from his current uh, deputy prime minister and finance minister, Christian Freeland, I, I don't know that he has anybody who can step in and help him. Am I right? Am I wrong? You, you're absolutely right. And, and it's because uh, most of that cabinet was chosen because of their uh, sex or their, uh, or their age. And, um, you know, whether there, there were some very good people in the caucus, and they are either not running again or they did not run in the last election. General Lewis out of uh, Ottawa, I mean, star candidate. And he wasn't put in the cabinet. In fact, we have a minister of defense who has embarrassed Canada around the world, particularly in the last few weeks with respect to Afghanistan, where our allies, people who have helped Canadian soldiers 
in dire straits have been left in Afghanistan, many to their certain death, because, first of all, the Minister of Defense can't get a plane over there, and secondly, the Minister of uh, Immigration says, well, you need a passport, and then he closes the passport offices. I mean, we are returning into a laughingstock around the world. So um, I think that uh, you mentioned Jody Raybould-Smith, and a number of your listeners Roy will have heard about the book coming out. I think it's Tuesday. but there's It's Tuesday. Story. She's been a guest on this program. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, the story yesterday, was it was a big story. Uh, extremely so. And what did Justin Trudeau do? He immediately said, I never told her to lie. So now he's challenging Jody Wilson-Raybould before the book is, uh, is actually out. Uh, they, maybe they have a copy of it. Maybe they know it's coming. Um, and, 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 and then subsequently... We know that he was convicted by the Ethics Commissioner. Maybe, Stephen, you can talk to us about how significant it is when the Ethics Commissioner says the Prime Minister is guilty of an ethics violation in the SNC Lavalin situation because he did bully, uh, that's, I'm paraphrasing, the, uh, the Attorney General. Yeah, well, I mean, the Prime Minister is not an educated person. So when he said at the very start of this, I've examined all this and everything was appropriate, he doesn't know what was appropriate. He has no idea of what is appropriate or not. She did. She was the Attorney General. But there's an excerpt in her book when she talks about a discussion, uh, discussion she had with the Prime Minister when he was trying to keep her in the cabinet and they were discussing SNC level. And he said, she said he was either incompetent, I'm just reading it here, he was either complicit or incompetent. Well, I think he may have been both. But we also know, everybody, all your listeners know, every Canadian knows that the Prime Minister will do anything to stay in power and that he will lie. He lies over the simplest things. He lies about the biggest things. I think, I think this election could come down to a set of issues, Roy. It could come down to character. And we, we all know the character of the prime minister over the last six years. And from my point of view and from the number of people I listen to, we find it wanting. If you were in a role to advise Mr. Trudeau on how to move his campaign along over the next eight days... If you were in that advisory role, what would you say to him? <laughs> you know, well, Talk really, about a question coming well, from yeah, left field, that's huh? Toughest question. That's, that's an extraordinarily tough question. I know. Uh, maybe it should be what Sheila Cobb said in an article, I think, a week and a half ago, when she said he should resign and let uh, the Liberal Party go it, uh, on its own, as opposed to with, uh, with Justin at the head. I don't think there's anything Justin can do. I think that, um, I think that his last election... I don't think if he, you know, paid everybody another couple thousand dollars, and he's already bought lots or tried to buy a lot of people uh, with checks, I don't think he can buy more votes. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I hope that um, people consider their choices very, very carefully. But, I mean, I think, okay. I think that's not the, it's, it's not the campaign, right? It's over the last six years. Yeah. Stephen, we have uh, time goes by so quickly. Uh, we have a minute here. When you look at uh, when you look at uh, Jagmeet Singh, who was a guest on this program earlier today, right. when you look at Aaron O'Toole, when you look at Anami Paul, when you look at the, 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 the opposition, what do you see there? Well, I see a, a, a bunch of a number of people who are very well intentioned and um, and they're honorable and they're honest. I know a few of them. I think Jugmead is an honorable, honest guy. He's an NDPer. I mean, he wants to uh, you know, just spend more money. I think I disagree with his policies completely. But he's out there trying to do the right thing, and he's not a scam artist. I think that um, I think that I'm very I'm yeah, he's a genuinely nice guy. Yeah, I, I pity the leader of the Green Party. She's been uh, pilloried and 
and I don't think they're going to have any seats at all in the next parliament. No. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the block, well, I don't even think you should have been in the debate the other night, because I'm not, I'm not campaigning to be Prime Minister of Canada. Well, then get off the stage, buddy. Exactly. And so then exactly. you're left with Aaron O'Toole. And uh, I don't know him very well, but from the record, and for what he's accomplished so far, and what he is saying, you know, he's not a dishonorable guy, he's an honorable guy. So if you look at the record of the last six years, and you don't like it, and you don't even know O'Toole very well, I think you have really no choice. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.